I'm Detective Lieutenant Elliot, and this is Trooper Wagner. We just want to ask a few questions. We understand the night of his demise, the family had gathered to celebrate your father's 85th birthday. How was it, by the way? The party? Pre-my dad's death? Oh, it was great. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to request that you all stay until the investigation is completed. What? Can we ask why? Has something changed? No. No, it hasn't changed, or no, we can't ask. I'm gonna live till I die. You think one of his family walls, walls. killed? Is that what you're suggesting? You all love twisting the knife into one another. Up your ass. Oh, very nice. Matter of fact, oh eat shit. How's that? Eat shit. Eat shit. Eat shit. Smug smile. Definitely eat shit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special bonus episode of the Slash Filmcast. I'm David Chen. I'm here today with Jeff Kanata. Jeff, how are you doing hey. this morning? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing well. <laughs> and back. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead, guys. Sorry. Oh well, thanks. Uh, thanks for banjo is back. The banjo's back. Thanks for stepping all over the intro. <laughs> Good. Sorry. <clears throat> Joining us today, Ryan Johnson has directed films. Hey, <laughs> As I was saying. <laughs> there we go. Sorry. Ryan Johnson has written and directed films such as Brick, The Brothers Bloom, Looper, and The Last Jedi. His newest film, Knives Out, is in theaters right now. Ryan Johnson, welcome back to the Slash Film. Guess how are you doing today? David and Jeff, thank you for having me. Guys, it's been a long time. <laughs> it was so sad when I opened my Skype. It has like a little thing that said, you last chatted to David Chen a year ago. I know, it's very thought, sad for me. Yeah, That's too long. That's I agree. Too long to be away from I agree. Yeah. We've got to do this more often, Ryan. Also, uh, I, I just want to say I had a... <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> oh, you're gonna you're gonna do this while d playing the band. Um, Why not? Go ahead. Yeah. I had a listener I like, in my mind. In my I mind, like the, I, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Ryan is holding the banjo up to his earbuds to make sure. That <laughs> <laughs> I like also how the banjo is like headlights to a deer for you. You hear it and you freeze. Yeah, no. I, I was like, how do I handle this situation? I had a uh, I had a listener talk to me recently, um, and they said, "Hey, so I heard Ryan Johnson appear on the uh, like the Big Picture podcast, and I was shocked that he was extremely gracious to the host there. <laughs> he was, didn't good. interrupt, didn't play banjo, because uh, they had never heard you outside of the context of uh, talking to me on the Slash Filmcast." So. No, uh, I, this is complete surprise. I love, this guy. I love and respect those guys. So, um, <laughs> no, I feel I, I feel comfortable with you, David. I can, exactly I can you because it's like we're family. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Well, well, we appreciate you joining, Ryan. I know you have a lot of options for who you can talk to these days about your films. <laughs> um, but let's dive into the film. We have a lot to talk about with regards to Knives Out. We're going to uh, talk about some general questions and then dive into like specific spoilery plot points. We will denote when the spoilers begin to be very clear for listeners who haven't seen the film. Um, but I guess I wanted to start by asking you, you know, you've 
So you've made a film that grossed over a billion dollars, which is not something a lot of people on this planet can claim to have done. <laughs> and uh, how did you go from that to deciding uh, to make a mid-budget murder mystery, which, by the way, is not a film that's easy to get made these days, let alone released? Like, what was, what was the thought process, the journey there? Well, David, I was sitting in my tub filled with my billion dollars and just kind of gazing into the uh, No, I came, look, I came out of Star Wars and I had had this like incredible, rich, beautiful, amazing you know, like experience doing the Star Wars movie. Um, but it had been a four year process, soup to nuts. So I'd been making one movie for four years. And so part of it was thinking, what can I what do I kind of have in a state where I can sit down and do it quickly? It felt like it'd be fun to just put something out really quick. And, uh, and I had been thinking about this idea for about 10 years. So, um, so I had kind of the bones of it. Um, and I sat down with my producer, Rom Bergman, and we kind of, kind of, kind of told him, all right, well, maybe it's time to do the murder mystery. And he said, yeah, let's do it. So, so I started writing and it happened really, really fast. I mean, the, it's weird because I would like I would love to have a narrative or like a story, a war story that fits in with the narrative of how hard it is to get these kinds of movies made. Yeah, this thing came together so quickly and so relatively easily. It, it made our heads spin. Um, I started writing January of last year of 2018, oh, wow. and we had wrapped we had wrapped the movie by Christmas. Um, it all just came together quick. I mean, a big part of that was getting Daniel Craig to sign on for it so uh that that helped but uh but yeah man it it was actually like an incredibly quick process once we started going well when you say it was it was percolating in your head for 10 years it, it feels like a movie from someone who's a fan of this genre of the sort of parlor murder mystery is is it something that came easily because of the amount of time you've been thinking about it yeah yeah it was well i mean Sort of, I don't know. No, I can't say it came easy. It was still because I had like the basic shape of it, and also, Jeff, that was a great. That was a great question. It's nice to get good questions. I like that. <laughs> That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. Yeah. It's, a, it's a contrast. So, we do like good cop, bad cop thing. I'm just saying it's nice. I'm not making a comparison <laughs> contrast. I'm just saying it's nice to get a thoughtful question. It's good. Uh, so though I had the basic shape of it, I had basically. This idea that okay, we could do a whodunit that kind of turns into a Hitchcock thriller that turns back into a whodunit at the end, and I had kind of the very basic kind of plot shape of it, but um, but still, when you sit down to actually work out how to put it together, it was it was it was not a, an easy writing process. It was it was quick, but it was it was really intense. Um, mm. I've heard recently somebody told me that Agatha Christie made a point of writing her books really quickly, though. Which I think is really interesting. Um, so so I, I, I want to talk about like Agatha Christie's uh, uh, tropes a little bit later on when we can get into spoilers. Mm -hmm. But I, I want to ask you about the cast because you said the cast came together uh, pretty quickly, obviously, and Daniel Craig was a key part of it. I mean, your cast is a murderer's row of high-profile talent. Jeff, do you have any any <laughs> questions about the cast that you? I do actually. I have a really, you know, I want. I, I want to know. <laughs> it is an amazing. But go, but cast. go ahead, Jeff. Go ahead. Go ahead. I I, I want to know about you know something like like I look at, at Michael Shannon's character and you know he has this cane and we mm -hmm. never find out about why he has this cane. Is that an affectation that is in the script that you bring to the table, or is that something Michael yeah. Shannon 
Yeah. Well, that's an interesting example because there is we we didn't cut much out of the movie, but there are two very very good scenes that I, we cut out of the movie for pacing reasons, and one of them is the one that explains why he has the broken leg <laughs> and the cane. Uh, and when we put the home video out, we'll we'll include them as extras. Those scenes that are very good, but um, but no, that was that was something where it was it was actually it, it, it's kind of a, a vestige of a previous plot point that we had kind of stripped out along the way. You you said like good, Daniel good Craig. Question, was, good question. Though. Good question. <laughs> you said Daniel Craig was kind of a key to to uh, getting this movie made. Can you talk a little bit about like how you pitched him on the film and and how uh, he came aboard this project? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. We just kind of sent him the script, and he he had the uh, the Bond movie pushed like three months, so he suddenly had a window open up, and then we sent him the script, and. Um, yeah, he was into it. It happened really, really quick when we sent him the script. It was crazy. Um, and uh, before I knew it, I was meeting with him, and then he said yes. And then from the moment he said yes, we had basically three weeks or six weeks to put the whole movie together, to prep it, to get the rest of the cast, and we had to start shooting in six weeks. So, um, But I think, I mean, you know, I think that Daniel, uh, he's – such a good actor he's got such range and i think he is so good at playing bond that i think a lot of people that's like shaped their perception of him um and he's a, like a fun i've met him a few times over the years he is really fun man he's really funny and uh so he's he's a lot like jeff you know he's he's got <laughs> like a, he brings a sense of fun to any conversation uh, mm, yeah. uh, even the most moribund conversations <laughs> and light well, enough I, for one, cannot wait to see the continuing adventures of Benoit Blanc, you know, rivaling yes. rivaling those of James Bond himself. I'm yeah, very excited to. We almost we almost got really cheeky. I was like, should we put just in text at the end of the crawl? Benoit Blanc will return. Yes. And, and yes. yes. <laughs> but we decided not to tempt the fates because if we <laughs> had flopped, that would have been <laughs> kind of hilarious. <laughs> so it, it feels anyway. like Benoit Blanc is inspired by uh, Hercule Poirot from the Agatha Christie universe, um, the the famed, uh, extremely talented Belgian detective. But then mm. in the film, he's a southern gentleman. I'm just curious, where did the inspiration for that version of that character come from? <laughs> Well, he, it, I started thinking probably too much about Poirot, um, and I started kind of from the very unuseful place of how do I make my own Poirot, and that was a bad place to start because I, I just kind of threw all these stupid quirks at the character, um, and like he had like an eye patch at one point. I'm like, God, oh, is he wear different? Is he like wear different glasses every time we see him? And like, <laughs> like that and i was just like ah this is this is terrible so i i so i so i threw all that out i wrote the character very straightforward and just gave him a southern accent figuring that would make him a fish out of water amongst the rich new england family um and then yeah when we tired daniel i just kind of we figured out what the southern accent would be because as you know there's lots of southern accents and kind of landed on a shelby foot style mississippi drawl because that sounded pleasant i know i wanted it to be a pleasant accent to listen to um yeah and kind of he kind of found i kind of said okay i'm gonna write the character pretty straightforward and then whoever plays him will find the nuance in there of how to really bring him to life you know 
There's a question in the chat room. We're broadcasting live right now uh, from M. Scott Phillips, who asks, is Benoit Blanc named for Mel Blanc, who is the actual voice of Foghorn Leghorn? <laughs> That's a great connection. Uh, no, I never. No, I, Benoit Blanc is a, I mean, Benoit was a, is a French tutor that I had, and I really like the name Benoit. And then Blanc, I was just trying to think of a last name that Americans could mispronounce. Um <laughs> like Barreau, but that's a great connection. I never even thought of that. Mm. That's hilarious. You should use that from now and pretend that was your plan all along. I think it's a good, well, I did. I mean, there is like some other clever naming in the movie. I, because I had so many characters, I needed a system to remember the names. And so I named all of the family after seventies rock stars. Mm. Um, and if you caught that, so Richard and Linda are Richard and Linda Thompson, uh, Walt, Walt and Donna are, Walter uh, uh, or Donald Fagan and Walter Becker, Steeler Dan. And then Joni is Joni Mitchell and her dead husband is Neil, who's Neil Young. So, oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. But um, and Ransom is is pulled from some C.S. Lewis books that I really love is sci-fi trilogy. The name, main character is named Ransom. And I always thought that was a, it's a very cool name. So uh, Knives Out is a closed circle mystery and i think there's like rules that you need to have to have a closed circle mystery like one of them being that um the actual perpetrator needs to be somebody that you like introduce you know in the course of the film not like it was the gardener that did it at the end that you you don't know who it is and there's other sort of structural components to it another one being like basically like you need to have all the evidence you need in order to solve the crime during the course of the film theoretically um i assume that was like important to you and like that that seems like very difficult to structure and and sir can can you talk about like did you start with like this is going to be the solution and work your way back from that or like how did you structure the mystery yourself yeah so i mean i I think that even more than this notion that I don't know. It, like, I, I think the idea that the audience has all the stuff that they need to solve it is, I guess, a little, um, I don't know. I, I, there's kind of two ways of, of approaching a story like this. One is in the notion that you're giving the audience a crossword puzzle that's solvable. And the other, which is actually the way that I kind of approach it from, is really thinking of it in terms of a of a narrative experience for the audience and thinking of it in terms of what is satisfying in terms of watching a movie. And really what's satisfying is not the sense that, um, you could solve it. Although I guess technically you could, but, um, maybe some people did, I don't know. But, uh, but what's satisfying is that at the end, every single payoff is something that you recognize. It's almost like a recognition game. And so in that big explanation at the end, Every single thing he lays out is something we can flash back to and show that we did set up. And there's something very satisfying about that. Um, so I was thinking more about that and less about how do I build this thing where the audience, you know, has a chance of like solving it, you know. It. So uh, I don't know if that makes sense, that yeah. distinction. But yeah, um, yeah. thinking of it in terms of a, I kept saying I, it's a roller coaster ride, not a crossword puzzle. Basically. Um, it also seems like a movie that, you know, we talk about Benoit Blanc in, in comparison to Poirot. I haven't, I don't know all the Poirot mysteries, but I can't think of one where I'm rooting against Poirot. You know, right. I think this is a, it's an interesting thing in this movie where I'm actively yeah. rooting against Benoit Blanc to solve the mystery. Well, 
And that gets, I mean, we should, we should save this for the spoiler section yeah. because that's real. That's a really fun thing to, that, that was something that got me very, very excited once I landed on the way to kind of make, to, to, to do exactly what you're saying. But, um, yeah, let's talk about that when we get into, if you haven't seen the movie yet, go watch the movie and come back. All right, let's get into spoilers in, in, in a bit. I just have one last question for you actually, before we get to spoilers, which is that like, I think you posted this image on your Twitter recently of, um, of like all these movies that are out in theaters right now, and like how Knives Out is out along with uh, Bong Joon Ho's Parasite, um, yeah. And you know those movies uh, are both like pretty thematically similar, in my opinion, or they have some thematic similarities. And uh, I guess I, I just wanted you to riff on Parasite, which is I'm guessing a movie you've seen already. And uh, oh, yeah. I, I love to hear filmmakers talk about other films they love. And so curious, like what your thoughts were on Parasite and. And uh, and whether you found any connections to your movie, I mean, I think Parasite's a, a masterwork. I think it's incredible. I just and, and it's so. Um, it also it 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 uh, it has the thing that like is one of my favorite things a movie can do, where it constantly feels like it's about to go off the rails, and then it lands the plane at the end of it in a way that is so. That ties everything together and makes the whole thing feel so cohesive. Sorry to bother you was a similar experience in a weird way mm -hmm. um, for me. But uh, Parasite, like when it gets to the when the party scene happens at the end, it just feels like, oh my god, is this is this the whole what what is even happening? And then when it gets to the actual ending, it's just like, oh my god, you're you're devastated. Um, and it's funny and it's entertaining and it keeps the audience just. It, 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 that's the other element of it that I thought was so exciting it's just it, it's um it's a movie that is that is thrilling and a real and funny and a real experience for audiences um and i i feel like i know that's one thing with knives out that was kind of a goal was i feel like the notion of i feel like we might have even talked about this before i feel like this kind of co-opting of the word entertaining by big movies you know what i mean is is something that is is nonsense. The idea that entertainment means um, turning your brain off and watching explosions, you know, whereas the notion that we, you can make something that is just people in rooms talking and have it. If you, if you, you know, are thinking in terms of the audience's experience, you can make it as entertaining and funny and thrilling. You can have people laughing and people cheering at the end and make it as entertaining as anything. That's like a big blockbuster entertainment. Um, I don't know. Yeah, getting up soapbox here, but so but Parasite is a very good example of that. Well, when I think of the movies that have come out this year, there has been this undercurrent of like eat the rich kind of thing. Like when I think of movies like Us, Jordan Peele's film, I think of Ready or Not, I think of Parasite, and I think of this film. And it feels yeah. like we're kind of in this moment of uh, this backlash against the rich and people enjoying seeing movies in which, uh, you know, the upper class are given what for. And I'm curious, like, w when you were writing this, was, was that something, like, were you, were you trying to, like, say something in that regard that would kind of fit in with this, uh, the cinema landscape right now where, where other films are also saying oh, this? No, not at all. I mean, those other films hadn't come out when I was writing. Right. <laughs> and I, like I said, I've been thinking about this for the past 10 years. So, no, I think it's just this weird confluence. And, I, you know, I, I wouldn't, and I'm sure the other, those other filmmakers wouldn't also, like, characterize it as, as eat the rich, per se. I think there's, it's more, I know, that I, could, I guess I can just speak for my own movie. It's, it's, it's you know, it, 
I, I hope it's not saying that, you know, money is the problem. It's, it's kind of looking much more at, uh, I don't know, I guess, I guess the easiest word for it is, is kind of privilege, I guess, but it's looking at kind of that American mode of once you're in the castle, you close up the drawbridge behind you. And it, it's also looking at, I think on a fundamental level, kind of thematically, kind of the same thing as Looper, the notion of what fear of this, this notion of what's mine. And mm. when that's threatens how kind of the source of all evil is, is possession basically. And this, what we will do in the stories we'll tell ourselves to justify holding on to what's ours and how that can lead to bad stuff anyway. So, yeah, no. uh, but yeah, it's interesting. That- yeah. Every, every year it seems like there's kind of, it does. I mean, movies respond to the culture that they're born out of. So it makes sense. You know? Well, one of the things that I love most about Knives Out is that it seems to, the movie's position seems to be, you know, in a time now where we are in our tribes and we say, you know, if you're not on my ideological side, right. you're you're my enemy. This movie seems to be saying, hey, w- both ideological extremes have rotten people in them. It's not about what ideological position you take. It's about being a good person. Exactly. And I, exactly. I just love that about this movie. That was the, oh, good. Yeah, that was that was really what the heart of it was supposed to be. That's great. All right, why don't we move into spoilers for Knives Out starting right now. So uh, if you have not seen Knives Out, uh, tune out. Go see the movie. Uh, it's still Go see it. Right Go see it. For sure. Uh, and then come back and listen to the rest of this conversation. Uh, there's a lot we're going to be diving into. So I spoke with my wife prior to this interview, and she has an encyclopedic knowledge of Agatha Christie. And, oh, boy. And, and she's, she pointed out, like, how many Agatha Christie tropes are in this movie, right? And mm-hmm. I, I thought I would relay some of these tropes to you. And you could, sort of, you could sort of, like, riff on them or comment on them, like, were you trying to do something? Were you trying to put a little spin on it? But let's start with uh, the one that Jeff Kanata pointed out, the idea of a gentleman detective, right? In general, there's a gentleman detective. He's usually a private consulting detective which, who works alongside the police, which is an uh, arrangement that I think is actually unimaginable in real life. Yes, um, I'm sure. In reality, the p- police would kick that person out. But um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of this way to let, this, uh, let the audience be delighted by this character because it's a game of wits of the audience versus the detective right typically you're you're trying to like outsmart the detective sometimes and uh in this movie you kind of turn it on its head a little bit because as jeff pointed out the person you're rooting for uh the detective is trying to capture so you you don't want uh the detective to succeed so can you talk about but like that trope and like and how you tried to bring that trope to life well, there's a couple of instances. I will reiterate, we're in spoiler, full spoiler territory here. So if you haven't seen the movie, go away, see the movie, then come back. Uh, so, yes. So um, so there's a couple interesting things. I mean, first of all, one thing, another trope that Christie, and, but all detective fiction in this mode kind of does is the audience never gets into the story or sees the story through the detective's eyes. There's always a secondary character. Um, I mean, it all began with, you know, Watson, but uh, Christie gives Poirot Captain Hastings in a lot of the book, or there's, um, you know, there is always kind of like a secondary character who's a step behind the detective who we are seeing the the story through their eyes. Um, And that's very important to give that kind of distance. Now, 
structurally, I talked to before, we talked before, Jeff, you asked the very intelligent, refreshingly intelligent question, Jeff, before. <laughs> Once I thought, okay, I'm going to structure this so it starts as a whodunit, turns into a Hitchcock thriller, turns back into a whodunit. And what that really means is for that central part, I'm going to do the Columbo thing. I'm going to kind of show you the crime and show you the quote unquote killer. And then it'll be sort of a how are or are, how are they going to get caught for the middle section of it until it isn't. And the, the reason I did that was because the, that's a weakness, a potential weakness of whodunits is that the second act can turn into clue gathering leading up to a big surprise, one big surprise at the end, which is like the antithesis of how Hitchcock built the engine of his movies. Um, he was all about suspense. So once I realized, I thought, okay, well, if you could do the Columbo thing, but make the audience genuinely be on the side of the quote unquote killer, you know, not in a way that's like the creepy, like, you know, Norman Bates way, but where you're like, oh, I feel weird that I'm rooting for this person or even like Walter <laughs> White, but in a genuine, sh the, she is in the moral right. Um, then it sets up exactly what you're talking about, Jeff. And the really interesting thing, though, is it's not the detective who is like the antagonist. The detective can be sympathetic. It is the rules of the genre itself that become right. the antagonist. It's mm. the fact that we know how these stories work yeah. and we know the killer gets caught at the end. Yeah. That becomes the thing that we're dreading. And that, I gave Blanc that line, you know, uh, this machine uh, what does he say? Uh, this machine lead, uh, finds the truth. That's what it does. Right. You know, and he's commenting uh, not—he's commenting not just on himself, but also on the genre itself, right? Exactly. Yeah. He's talking about we're in this machine. It leads to me catching you at the end, and she asks always, and and so <laughs> yes, uh, the, very much that seemed like a that that just as a genre wonk that got me very excited. Well, speaking yeah, the, of Anna de Armas, like a commonly recurring trope also is the idea that the narrator is unreliable, right? So uh, right. the book, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, probably the most famous instance Classic. of this, right? And Classic. you kind of turn this notion on its head because in like the parallel version of that book in this uh, movie is like uh, Marta is theoretically the narrator, right? But you, you kind of turn it on its head because she can't lie. Right. So she's right. like, in some ways, the unreliable narrator, but she lies by omission. So like, when did you come up with that idea? <laughs> so that was just kind of a uh, there was a, a story based thing that I came up with and then slowly got to the idea of the vomit thing. And so the story based thing was, uh, OK, she's we're going to care about this character. She's in an impossible situation. Her only tool to get out of that situation is lying. So it's the Vince Gilligan school of screenwriting. It's let's make life as hard as possible for the characters we care about. And so take away her ability to lie. And then I thought, well, okay, so that means giving her a tell. She can like blink twice. She can like touch her nose. And, but then when I thought, well, let's have something a little more fun. And I thought of the vomit thing, <laughs> a, the, a, that's fun. Like it's, it's a fun way to kind of like do that. B it's something she can't hide. It's something where once we know that there's no way she can like, you know, she can't like yeah. turn away for a second. You know, she, she manages to at one point in the car, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so, uh, and then the bigger thing was when I realized how I could use it at the end and right. <laughs> yeah, so be satisfying. because not just, yeah, not just, but also a very important story thing at the end is 
when we get to that final scene where that thing happens, um, what we've just witnessed is our protagonist essentially being passive and listening for 20 minutes while Blanc lays the crime out. And I needed a beat at the end where Marta was active and proactive and did something that won the day. She had to beat uh, the killer in a way that was active. And so once I realized I could leverage this, the puke thing in service of that, that that's what made me just like, Oh yeah. So it's, you get like one of those every script and a half where you could, where you realize an idea and you start jumping around your, mm-hmm. you know, your room, like thinking, ah, oh, that's really going to work. So, yeah. It's so funny that we, as the audience are like, yes, she really is dead. Yes. <laughs> that's true. One of the things that I love about the process of watching this movie too, is, is that it seems like we're having a, or at least I felt like I was having a conversation with the movie where, yeah. I would think something, and then it seems like you anticipated my thought and mm. are answering it. Like there's a, a a stretch there where I'm like, you know, he's definitely not dead. He's mm-hmm. he faked his own death. He's a he's gonna author. walk out of like yeah yeah yeah. He's yeah. a he's a mystery author. He's doing this to mess sure. with his family, you know. And then sure. the movie seems to go, yeah, I know you thought that. He's totally dead. Here's, Here's him the... dying. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> You know, yeah. is there yeah. is there a step in in the writing process where you are trying to anticipate those things that the audience is going to think and then answering them? Not, not I mean, the thing is, I feel like you can you got to be careful with that because you can get yourself in trouble because it's it's really even big, obvious things like that. It's it's still hard to really anticipate those with accuracy. And if you start writing to that, you can, you know. I think it's a, for me, I'm, I'm much more focused on a much more useful place to write is not thinking in some meta way of where the audience's head is going to be, but really entirely thinking through the eyes of the characters that we're seeing the story through. And it's Mm. largely Marta for a lot of the movie. So, you know, that really helps me to focus. I think I would go a little crazy if I started doing all the math of what is the audience going to be thinking. Uh, It's much more, okay, what is Marta thinking? What is her, because I know the audience is seeing it through her eyes. So, um, I mean, there's a little bit of what you're talking about, but it's it's I I think that can slightly be a dangerous path to go down. I, I think it was a real head fake, right? When uh, the moment when Christopher Plummer is very calmly telling Marta what to do uh, because right. he's, he thinks he's been injected, and like it makes me feel like, oh, maybe Christopher Plummer is somehow responsible for this. Maybe he's not really dead. Maybe he's engineering right. this whole thing. And then uh, the movie is a little bit over two hours long, I think, uh, but it's around 54 minutes into the film when you yeah. show Harlan stabbing himself or slitting his own throat, right? right? right. And that, that scene kind of removes all doubt that he is, in fact, dead, because you're seeing it as a flashback. And right. it's, it's kind of, you're, sh- you're showing as much of it as you can while still being tasteful. Right. Um, right. So what was behind the decision to like, reveal that to the audience at like slightly before the halfway point because you could have like I, I guess you needed to to some degree right show it from her perspective but I feels to me like you could have concealed that further on like when what was the idea of like that's, revealing he's definitely dead at that point that's like the transition point into Hitchcock land right right yeah right exactly yeah well because I I didn't want to I uh, I think another essential thing for a good who done it is the audience feeling like you're playing fair at least for me, when I'm watching one of these, I feel like 
if I know a movie is teasing me and holding back information that I feel like I'm ahead of, then I get that feeling of, okay, 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 I, I know what's going to happen. Da, 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 da. And so I feel like actually a good whodunit does exactly what you're talking about and cuts it. It says to the audience, no, we're playing straight with you. This is here is actually, you know, it's the same way that, you know, a magician wants to give the appearance with a card trick of having nothing up my sleeves, showing you very clearly that everything is above board here, even if it's not. So, um, so the notion of, you know, uh, the notion of kind of extending that kind of coy, is he dead? Is he not? I don't know. Where, as opposed to, and also because I knew that I had another engine for that second half of the movie. I wasn't going to rely on this notion of the audience guessing if he was dead or not. Right. I was going to put all my eggs in the basket uh, or appear that I'm putting all my eggs in the basket of how is Marta going to get away with, oh no, this girl is in this tough situation. I'd like her. How is she going to get out of this impossible thing while all of these things come down on her head? So it made sense in that moment. Um, and it also emotionally from the point of it was mostly done that scene to kind of put sort of a, a moral to give Marta um, even less than the reveal, the moment that comes after of her having the emotional reaction to having watched her friend just die and then finding her resolve to I'm going to do what he told me I'm going to do do his last wish. I'm going to get out of this. That was as important, uh, if not more so than the, uh, the, the revelation of it. Right. Right. A couple more tropes I wanted to mention to you. Um, one of them is that disguise is a, another huge Agatha Christie trope, right? Um, uh, examples include witness from the prosecution, the mysterious affair at styles. I'm curious. Mm -hmm. It's kind of referenced in this movie. It's not a huge plot point, but like Anna de Armas' character Marta disguises herself as Harlan in the film. Right. Uh, right. Was that something you, like you were uh, consciously calling back to? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's also one of my favorite Poirot books, which is not one that many people enjoy. I'd be curious whether what what your wife thinks of it uh, is Curtin, which is Poirot's last case. And uh, I think it's a beautiful book. It's kind of the Irishman of Agatha Christie books. It's kind of a sad and about death and uh, like about everything ending. But there is also a, a very um, interesting version of what you're talking about in that book. Um, and yeah, the the notion that this thing, this thing that she would do to get away with the thing that Harlan talks her through the idea that that is a fairly standard murder mystery thing, um, which is all kind of, uh, Mr. You know, basically hacking the perceived timeline of who was there when through, uh, you know, it, it, and, and there's in the murder of Roger Ackroyd, it's done with a phonograph in there's, there's many different versions of it. Um, but the idea that that would be kind of a very straightforward murder mystery tropey thing, that this murder mystery writer would come up with um, and something that that also adds to the tension of, well, of course, Blanc is going to be able to untangle this because this is the sort of thing that detectives untangle in these mm. books. You know? yeah. uh, on that note, another standard one, uh, wordplay being part of the, the final solution mm -hmm. in, in the like in the case of uh, well, there's a, mo a book called The Double Clue uh, that that references mm. this. But like in the film, it is in the form of. You did it. 
huge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, so <good>. right. <laughs> uh, extremely Agatha Christie type of thing. And I'm curious, like, when yeah. you like, did you have that in mind already? Like, we got to make it his name Hugh, so you can think she was saying you. I forget at what point I came up with that. I mean, I think it's yeah, that is a very tropey thing. I love, I love that kind of stuff. I think that's super, super fun. I think I don't think I would have hinged the entire movie on something like that. (laughs) I think that, I think that kind of works because it's a little bit of the cherry on top of the Sunday when it comes. And it's like one extra little, little delight in this long line of things. I'm not sure if it's, you know, a strong enough thing to have actually put any weight on. But um, there have been murder mysteries that do like, there have been murder mysteries that do like hinge on that, like the pronunciation of a name or something, right? Somebody took great delight in pointing out that the movie, the Elijah Wood movie, North, entirely hinges on him mishearing like a name like that <laughs> I, which i haven't seen in years but someone's like yeah that's the whole reason that he goes off on this weird trip is because he mishears her his parents saying like you know uh, like, I, I, I thought you were trying is. to make the north of detective films uh ryan uh, i was yeah that's what i named it for uh, final trope i'll bring up which is like an, an extremely important agatha christie trope is that the mechanics of the murderer as explained, feel very, very intricate and difficult, if not impossible. Like, the timing right. is extremely challenging. You know, right. how do you switch the labels and the morphine, et cetera, et cetera? It relies on this extraordinary precision timing. Uh, a big right. example right. of this being, like, Murder on the Orient Express. Um, sure. Right. So, like, curious, like, if that was something that you had in mind when you were... I guess in this case, right, in this film, yeah. that, that would be, like, in... Uh, uh, Hugh or Ransom going back into the house and like doing all that stuff before sure. Marta goes back in. Um, sure. So yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there's always. I mean, that's I think part of the fun of something like this is there's always a slight element of ridiculousness to, <laughs> to when you actually think about how someone would go about killing someone. There's always and and I think the trick is to have that slight bit of silliness but at the same time you don't want it to tip over into oh come on you know you don't you don't want to break it basically you know and uh and you need to kind of uh, it's kind of it, it that way it has it has something in common with time travel i think in movies where yeah. it's it's something that doesn't really make i mean it makes sense in terms of like the, the interior rules of it it doesn't really make sense that someone would do this in order to uh, you know, in order to bump their grandfather off, but at the same time, within the within the telling of the story, it makes perfect sense, and within the logic of the story, it it it, it makes perfect sense, and probably more important within the genre that the audience knows the story is taking place in, it makes yeah. sense. This is the sort of thing people do in murder mysteries, and so we and so we buy it. It's a Rube Goldberg, right? It's like just just unlock the door. No, I got to set the egg up to roll down to hit the thing. You know, yeah. that's the fun. That's the fun of it. It is, but it also, I mean, again, it, 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 you know, like in the case of ours, like there is a reason that he does it that way. You know, right. he doesn't just just go up and kill his grandpa because he his whole thing is he wants to frame Marta for it. You know, right. and so um, there there is something that makes sense about it in this kind of circumspect way, and it's simple enough to wait like i think if we made it too complicated like it or or had it hinge on on too uh insane of a exactly this had to happen at exactly this moment if if the if the idea of luck played too big a part in what was supposed to happen 
with with the killer's intent, then I think that could break it for the audience and, and become unsatisfying. Right, right. Well, I'll tell you the the moment that I started crying in your movie uh, was when we find out that Marta would just know the viscosity yeah. of the yeah. like her level of skill and experience. Yeah. It's such a it's such a beautiful detail. Did you did you come to that or was that one so of the inspirations that, for the So originally as I had it written, I didn't have that. She just actually mixed up the mixed up the things and gave him the right ones, but accidentally because everything spilled on the ground when he tipped the go board over. Mm-hmm. The notion of she somehow did subconsciously picked up the right one, but in that whole beautiful moment of could be where she gets to tell her you're a good because you're a good nurse which those two actors just play so well in that moment I just, it's I, amazing it really emotionally and the way that nathan's music kicks in at that point it's it's a, i'm so happy with that moment that actually so i have a two friends dan and stacy sheridan who are uh, dear friends of mine since college and they're a screenwriting team husband and wife screenwriting team and you know everyone as a writer has like their crew that they they're like their few friends that they really trust who are the first ones they show any script to and dan and stacy are that for me and it was actually them who when i showed them the first draft pitched this idea of her picking up the right one because she the because the viscosity it was like a note they gave like what about this and i think at first i was like oh i don't know and then i slowly realized dan and stacy have just handed me a plate of solid gold (laughs) so (laughs) that's that's the dan and stacy moment in this script and i Full credit to them for the that is, is really awesome. it. Yeah, yeah. I, I Monroe in the chat room says my parents are nurses and they cheered when Blanc called her a good nurse. So <laughs> I love yeah. that. Well, we had a we had a local consultant who is a who is a nurse and she showed Anna how to do and it's it's pretty correct. Like she does um, a saline rinse in between every one of the uh, like a saline flush every time. So if you look, she's only given him two injections, but she like does it like you know uh, three or four times because she's doing the proper thing and she she wipes the nub of it with like this antiseptic thing and she so she anna we took great pains to try and make the nursing elements um as unwrong as we possibly could Mm. you know i said i was done talking about tropes i have one more i want to bring up because i just can't resist which is that like in agatha christie novels often each of the characters is an archetype of uh, like people of our times, right? Yeah, um, and yeah. that's kind of something that you do in this film. Like in, in you know in this movie, uh, the the hired help is an immigrant. The the child is an alt right troll. There's like a lifestyle right. blogger. Um, there's like Don Johnson, a character who thinks he's like very progressive by referencing Hamilton, mm-hmm. but in fact he's terrible. Um, <laughs> and so uh, it it's, it feels like you know that murder mysteries. <laughs> are a kind of a way of saying something about what upper-class America looks like. Was that something that was on your mind as you were writing this? Yeah, so it's, inter- it's, it's very, very true. And there's something about this genre, about the whodunit genre. The thing is kind of perfectly – the genre itself is so good at looking at the class structure of a society um, without like having to stop what it is in order to – preach about it or something it's baked into you can do this incredibly entertaining ride this wonderfully entertaining genre and just in the bones of it is a little microcosm of society 
with a power structure within that microcosm. And then your suspects are a cross-section of that microcosm from the high to the low of society. It's just a beautiful machine. And the thing that was interesting to me is usually, you know, when we, we're used to seeing that, but we're used to seeing it done as period pieces said in the past and usually done in Britain because they're usually Agatha Christie adaptations. And as Americans, we can all feel a little kind of high and mighty about those silly Brits with their upstairs downstairs stuff. Um, <laughs> and the note, the notion of, of taking that machine and applying it to America in 2019 seemed like it could be really, um, seemed like it could yield some really interesting things. I want to talk about a couple of like some of uh, the really interesting shots in the film, you know, mm. uh, and, and kind of how you conceived of them, how you executed them. Uh, so one of the most memorable shots of the film, I think, is also in the trailer, uh, which is, I think, the character of Fran is sitting there in, in the darkness. And then, you know, Marta walks up to her and shines a flashlight on her face and there's like a spider crawling on her face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very memorable moment, like, because, like, the spider on the face indicates something about what has happened to that character. And it's also just, like, a terrifying image overall. Um, Right. Is is that something that you had, like, conceived, like, do you storyboard out uh, your movies, uh, even movies? Obviously, with Last Jedi, you'd have to do that. But, like, with this, is that something you. Yeah, I do. I do. I storyboard out the whole thing. I do just really. I've, I feel like I've gotten worse at drawing over the years. I, I, <laughs> they're actually, and so they're really crude line drawings. Um, that, but they, what they do is they just my Steve, my DP, he loves them because they just give the basic information of the composition of the shot without any superfluous information. Um, and so, uh, yeah, but I, I storyboard out the whole thing, and then when I, we show up on set. Sometimes we'll deviate from that. Sometimes we'll, you know, I'll block it and I'll say, or I'll look at the real space and say, oh, this would be better to do it this way. But I always have to have that back up in my head. And, um, and yeah, the, the, the spider shot was a good example of that. That, that was a, that was one that I absolutely had to, and we had to something like that or the lighting gag, kind of the apocalypse now lighting gag where Blanc is sitting in the dark and then he leans forward yeah. into the light in the first scene where he talks to Marta. You kind of have to visually plan that because you have to plan the entire lighting of the space around it. You know, So the notion, we had to pick that location, that laundromat location, with the notion that it would be the windows just on one side and okay, we have to paper up the windows so it's like diffused lighting, so it's very silhouette-y when, and when Marta's walking in on this side. So yeah, yeah, that's something that, yeah, definitely planned out from the start. One of the shots that struck me in the movie is uh, immediately after the, uh, the will is read and Marta is sort of escaping before she gets into Ransom's car. It, it felt like there's a, there's a chaos of the whole family following her out, and it felt like there's a shot where it starts on sticks and then someone like yeah. picks it up off the sticks and it's handheld. Yeah. Yeah. I've never yeah, seen yeah. that before. I thought that was so cool. Yeah. We started on a dolly and we kind of had the camera just resting on, uh, on the dolly head with like some foam rubber. So it wouldn't slip around. And then Dale Myrand, our camera operator, he was ready. And at the appropriate moment, he picked up and went handheld. And I think because I think it's the only handheld in the movie yeah i was gonna uh, say i think that's the only handheld shot in the whole film if i if i recall yeah correctly. which which i think is the reason it has impact i'm, I'm always surprised people notice it but i think it's because it, it is you know unique and and for it and in that moment it felt like it made a lot of sense to get you inside her head um and especially to show it with the contrast of the shot yeah. itself 
starting in the mode of the rest of the movie, this very solid mode, and then it going to chaos. So, oh, that's cool. Yeah, would glad it would have been. Yeah, I think it would have been effective just cutting to a handheld shot, but that that transition yeah. of it, you know, yeah, like you said, starting in the mode of the movie and then literally like picked up yeah. off the thing. It's so cool. <laughs> it's very disorienting, and you know, yeah. in a way that fits the yeah. the nature of that scene. So, oh, uh, I love it. It's good. So I, I'd like to class things up here, Ryan, by asking you about. Oh vom- my god, no! <laughs> by asking you about vomit. <laughs> I I mean, I don't want to go on a rant here, but I feel like a lot of like movie vomit looks like way too easy. You know what I mean? Like often a character like bends over a toilet and you hear a sound effect and nothing else. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I just like to thank you for bringing back the movie vomit, which is uh, something that happens at the final scene of the film (laughs) when Marta like like projectile vomits all over uh, Ransom's face. Yeah. And yes. <laughs> uh, I'm just curious, like it was a very like extremely, looked like a very uh, chunky, undigested vomit. I'm curious like how you arrived at how that vomit would look because it, it feels like a, a pretty key right. moment in the film. Yeah, it had to be kind of brownish. It had to have chunks in it, colorful chunks. <laughs> uh, and it was, it the vomit itself was uh, quite delicious, actually. And I know this because it was like getting a toddler to eat. I, like, uh-huh. showed Anna, mmm, I, like, ate part of it, like, a spoonful uh-huh. of it myself. Like, And it was uh, it was kind of like apple cinnamony with, like, chunks of, I forget what was in there. It was, like, like I don't forget if it was, like, apple chunks or something or, like, little things of, I forget, but dried fruit or something. Um, but, yes, we had, Anna, for Anna's shot, she actually spits it out, and then for Chris's shot, we actually had like a little air cannon that blew, <laughs> blew it into his face. <laughs> how many, oh, how many takes of that did you have to do? I think we did two. I oh, think okay. we did two. That's, that's yeah, very merciful. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you could have you could have done the smooth vomit. You, you know, you could have done something less nah, you need uh, the repulsive. But, uh, you know, you did the chunks. <laughs> and, uh, well, and it, in that moment, we want, you know, it. I think it's ten, the grossness of it is tempered by how happy we are that it's happening to him, you know? And so I (laughs) think we get away with a chunkier consistency. Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. Um, Hey, so we talked a lot about like Agatha Christie as being an, obviously a huge inspiration for this film. I'm curious, like, were there any other uh, detective novels or authors that you're a big fan of that kind of informed this movie? Um, Uh, My take was that Harlem Thrombey was a, was a reference to Harlan Coben. I didn't know if that was the case though. No, not really. He was a reference to a book that I grew up loving, a choose-your-own-adventure book called Who Killed Harlow Thrombey. Oh, um, wow. That's cool. You remember that book? I don't know if you guys. I, You're I too young. I re- well, no, I read a ton of Choose-Your-Own-Adventure, so it's very it's possible I read it, yeah. It's before your time. Yeah, so that was that was a reference to that. Um, but uh, no, I mean there are other there are other authors I really I enjoy Dorothy Sayers' work. I like John Dixon Carr. Um, but, but Christie for me is the one that I really re- grew up reading, and I feel like um, her her character work is 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 the main thing that I is one of the big things I love about her, along with her plotting. Um, I think she's very very she's kind of underrated as a writer in terms of how she. Uh, draws these characters who on one hand are very like you said archetypal they're kind of caricatures in a way but they also land enough as characters for us to um be invested in them so yeah chris christie christie's the main one but there's look there's so many great mystery writers out there people keep asking me if i have read and i never have the um 
what is it? The the, the Westing game. Um, oh yeah. You guys know yeah, which I've never read actually, and I guess it has to do with a will and an old house, and I, I need to read it. But it is a great book. I'm curious. It's pretty hilarious that you haven't read the the Westing game, but who killed Harlow Thromby was the inspiration <laughs> for Harlow Thromby's name. Um, Are you 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 joked earlier about you know Benoit Blanc will return? Is, is there some desire to return to that character if you get the oh chance? Oh my god, yeah, man, absolutely. Yeah. I'm I'm already plotting out the next one. I, awesome. Yeah, yes. I, yeah. Yeah, That's yeah, so cool. yeah. No, I, I, Daniel and I had so much fun doing this. Also, you know, it was like, and so, no, I, I was just honestly holding my, crossing my fingers that I, I was like, if audiences respond to this one, I'll, I'll pull the trigger right away on the next one. It would, it, it would be really fun. So I would love the idea of, of you know, it, it continuing in the tradition of uh, a sort of ensemble, cool. Uh, oh, yeah. all-star cast, you know, I, I just, it's such a Absolutely. Idea. Go to yeah. a whole new location and just yeah. do a whole new cast and just like, yeah, that, yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how I get Noah Segan in it, though, if it's a whole new <laughs> cast. <laughs> yeah. have, have him just play a totally different character. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he'll be a different character in every film. He's like a little Easter egg there, you know? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, Ryan Johnson, we're so glad that Knives Out uh, is not only a great film, it's also doing really well at the box office, it's clear that you. um, you've tapped into something that uh, people are really interested in, that they love. So congrats on all your success. <laughs> you really can't multitask with the banjo. The banjo it's, it's, I, I it's picture, hard. It's I coming right. You freezing. <laughs> <laughs> A little drool coming out of the side of your mouth as you. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like. Uh, uh, it's like I'm like the mature Manchurian candidate. Like when you when the banjo comes out, I'm like I don't. <laughs> I go into a whole you another go, mode. You, um, you go to the closet and get out the sniper rifle and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, um, well, Ryan Johnson, congrats on everything. Ryan Johnson is. Uh, the director of films such as Brick with the Brothers Bloom, Looper, and The Last Jedi. Knives Out is his newest film. It's out in theaters right now. Ryan, thanks for joining us today on the Slash Filmcast. Guys, thank you so much for having me. Jeff, thank you for having me, Jeff. I appreciate hey, it. you know what? It was my pleasure. I'm glad I could. Yes. Uh, Anytime uh, I'll come on your podcast, Jeff. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, David Chen. I love you. Love you too, man. All right, love guys. Love you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. <laughs>